So chapter 20, verse 1. Now, King Ben-Hadad of Syria, or also known as Aram, those words are used interchangeably, assembled all of his army along with the 32 other kings with their horses and chariots. He marched against Samaria and besieged and attacked it. He sent messengers to King Ahab of Israel, who was in the city, and he said to them, This is what Ben-Hadad says, Your silver, your gold are mine, as well as the best of your wives and sons. The king of Israel replied, It is just as you say, my master, O king, I and all I own belong to you. So Ben-Hadad brings his chariots and horses, his great military, and he comes down and he besieges Samaria and he wipes out many cities and he's now put Samaria under siege and he says, all your gold and silver belongs to me and give me your best wives and children. That's a weird thing to say. Like, How, how do you classify your wives and children as your best? Yeah. And Ahab says, I will do just what you want. We don't know why Ahab's saying that yet. It could be that he's just incredibly afraid. But as we keep going, things change. Verse 5, the messengers came again and said, this is what Ben-Hadad says, I sent a message to you, you must give me your silver, gold, wives, and sons. But now at this time, tomorrow, I will send my servants to you, and they will search through your palace and your servants' houses, and they will carry away all the valuables. The king of Israel summoned all the leaders of the land and said, Notice how this man is looking for trouble. Indeed, he demanded my wives and sons and silver and gold, and I did not resist him. So now Ahab is like, no, I'm not going to do that. Well, what has changed? The request is pretty much the same, except for one thing. It's a search. See, before he said, just give it to me. So we probably would just say, here's some silver and here's some gold, and here's my not-so-best wives and children. But now Ben-Hadad's like, I'm coming to actually search through your palace, and I'm going to take what you want, I want. And Ahab's like, no, I'm not going to do that. Who do you think you are? The guy who's been crushing you in every single battle? And he gets really cocky. And then we go into a series of trash talking. It's like we're on the basketball court. The king of so he said, so all the leaders and the people said to him, do not give in to agree to him, to his demands. So he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, say this to my master, the king, I will give you everything you demand at first from your servant, but I am unable to agree to this last demand. So the messengers went back and gave the report. Ben-Hadad sent another message to him. May the gods judge me ever so severely. If there is enough dirt left in Samaria for my soldiers to scoop up in their hands. Basically, I'm going to destroy everything. The king of Israel replied, Tell him the one who puts on his battle gear should not boast like the one who is taking it off. Okay, so don't brag about how awesome you are before you've even put your battle gear on when you haven't even defeated me and taken it off yet. So your pride is a little preemptive. When Ben-Hadad received this reply, he and the other kings were drinking in their quarters and he ordered his servants get ready to attack so they got ready to attack the city. Why is he mentioning the drinking part? The narrator is mentioning the drinking part because that's how cocky Ben-Hadad is. Look, if you get totally drunk before you play a basketball game or a football game, you're either really dumb or incredibly cocky that you can do, still be awesome and win the game even drunk. And that's the idea. He's there with all of his generals and commanders. They're sitting in the tent. They put this place under siege, and they're so confident they can defeat Israel that they're already drunk. 
Not just him, but all of his generals too. That's how cocky they are. Verse 13, the prophet had visited King Ahab of Israel and said, this is what Yahweh says. Do you see this huge army? Look, I am going to hand it over to you this very day, and then you will know that I am Yahweh. Ahab asked, by whom will this be accomplished? He answered, this is what Yahweh says. By the servants of the district governors. Ahab asked, what, who will launch the attack? And he answered, you will. So the prophet comes and says, notice, he'll say, because you're obedient to God, and I'm going to bless you and reward you with a victory. He says, so that you, Ahab, will know that the God that you've abandoned is actually truly sovereign. God is not going to give Ahab victory as a reward. He's going to give him victory in an attempt to bring Ahab back to him. I want you to know that I am Yahweh, and I'm going to defeat the enemy. And Ahab's like, who? Like, because deep down the side, Ahab is scared. And God says, some of your Bibles say the junior, like, officers, like it's the junior varsity team. That's not what it actually says. The Hebrew actually communicates the district governors. He's talking about the governors, the people who are not trained to fight at all. So he's not saying, not only will your varsity team not do this, your junior varsity team is not going to do this, The people who sit the bench are not going to do this. The judges are going to fight the battle. They're going to win it. Who's going to lead them? You will, Ahab. You're going to lead a bunch of governors who have no military training against the greatest and most feared army of the world at that time period. And you're going to win because I am God. I don't need your chariots. I don't need your trained generals. And I'm going to go up against the most fierce army and the fiercest chariots, and you're going to win. Because I am Yahweh. Notice it was not Elijah the prophet who came. So Ahab assembled 232 servants of the district governors. And after that he assembled of the Israelite army numbering 7,000. They marched out at noon while Ben-Hadad and the 32 kings allied with them were drinking heavily in their quarters. And the servants of the district governors led the march. When Ben-Hadad sent messengers, they reported back to him, Men are marching out of Samaria. He ordered, whether they come in peace or do battle, take them alive. They marched out of the city with the servants of the district governors in the lead and the army behind them. And each one struck down an enemy soldier, and the Syrians fled, and Israel chased them. And King Ben-Hadad of Syria escaped on horseback with some of the horsemen. Then the king of Israel marched out and struck down the horses and the chariots and thoroughly defeated Syria. That's an amazing task. But it's not over with. Verse 22. The prophet visited the king of Israel and instructed him, Go fortify your defenses. Determine what you must do, for in the spring the king of Syria will come back and attack you again. They're going to come back in the spring and attack. Now the advisors of the king of Syria said to him, Their God is the God of the mountains. That's why they overpowered us. But if we fight them in the plains, we will certainly overpower them. So knows how the mind of an ancient person thinks. They don't think like, we were really drunk, and their God is absolutely superior to us. What they're saying is, their God is the God of the mountains, and we fought them on their God's home turf. But if we take them to a different court where they don't have the advantage, and their God has no power in the plains, then he will never be able to touch us and defeat us. That's how the ancient mind thinks when it comes to theology. 
If you're talking about any God in the entire world except for Yahweh, that is absolutely correct thinking. But they don't know this is different about Yahweh because Israel has failed to be the image of God. Israel has failed to be the image of God. Verse 24. So do this. Dismiss the kings from their command and replace them with the military commanders. Muster an army like the one you lost and the same number of horses and chariots Then we will fight them in the plains and will certainly overpower them. He approved their plan and did as they advise. Verse 26. In the spring, Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrian army and marched to Aphek to fight Israel. Aphek is up here in the purple. Can't quite reach it. But a little bit higher than the yellow and the purple. And it's in the plains territory. They marched out and faced them in battle, or sorry, the Israelites marched out and faced them in battle and deployed opposite them. They were like two small flocks of goats, but the Syrians filled the land. Now that gives you a comparison. They're like teeny little flocks of goats, the Israelites, but the Syrians fill the land. The prophet visited the king of Israel and said, this is what Yahweh says, because the Syrians said, Yahweh is the God of the mountains and not a God of the valleys. I will hand over to you this entire huge army, and then they will know I am Yahweh. So this time he says, you should know that I am Yahweh by what I did last year, but now I'm going to show them that I am Yahweh. By the way, then I'm going to defeat them again, even in the plains. The armies, verse 29, deployed opposite each other seven days. On the seventh day, the battle began, and the Israelites killed 100,000 Syrian foot soldiers in one day. The remaining 27,000 ran to Aphek and went into the city. But the wall fell on them. Then Ben-Hadad, that's not random, that's God. Walls just don't randomly fall on people. But Ben-Hadad ran into the city and hid in the inner room. His advisors said to him, Look, we have heard that the kings of the Israelites' dynasty are kind. Allow us to put sackcloth around our waist and ropes on our heads and surrender to the king of Israel. Maybe he will spare our lives. So they put sackcloth around their waists and ropes on their heads and went to the king of Israel. They said, your servant Ben-Hadad says, please let me live. Ahab replied, is he still alive? He is my brother. The men took this as good omen and quickly accepted his offer saying, Ben-Hadad is your brother. Let's make, basically, he wants to make a treaty. Ahab then said, go get him. So Ben-Hadad came out to him and Ahab pulled him up onto this chariot. Ben-Hadad said, I will return the cities my father took from your father, and you may set up markets in Damascus, just as my father did in Samaria. Ahab then said, I want to make a treaty with you before I dismiss you. So he made a treaty with them and dismissed them. Now, what do you notice? No I mean, yes. According to the Deuteronomic law, he is supposed to kill the enemy. When the enemy comes and attacks you, and pushes their idolatry into your land. He's supposed to kill them. Yet he doesn't. And not only that, he made a treaty with them. Not only that, he made a treaty with them. What is God going to do to this? One of the members of the prophetic guild, speaking with divine authority, ordered his companion, wound me. But the man refused to wound him. So the prophet said, because you have disobeyed Yahweh, as soon as you leave me, a lion will come and kill you. When he left him, a lion attacked him and killed him. Like, what? Your Bibles probably say the company of the prophets, one of the members of the company of the prophets. But the Hebrew literally says the sons of the prophets. Now, I've talked about this way back in Genesis with the sons of God or the son of man. But whenever you have a phrase, the son of blank, whatever the variable is, 
what it means is that whatever the blank is, the son is also. So it's not saying that this is a son of a prophet, literally. It's saying this is a company of prophets. This is a guild of prophets. So the son of the prophets is that they're prophets. It's just a way of saying it. Um, the, probably the best illustration we have today is that I've never seen this show, so don't be like, what are you watching? I don't even know what the show's like. Um, but there's a TV show called Sons of Anarchy. And the TV show is not saying they are literally the biological children of anarchy. It is saying that they are anarchy. And that's exactly how this phrase is being used. This is a company of prophets. Now, these prophets are very hard to figure out, and they're very weird. Most commentators call them crackpots and crazy men. They're like the, I don't know what they are, but they're very confusing to figure out because in some cases, they seem very godly and obedient to God. They're, they're speaking God's behalf and he's backing them up. Like, may God judge you for disobeying me and God judges you for disobeying you. And that sounds like they very much are tapped into God and they're doing his will. But then there's other moments where they're flocking out of Bethel. And Bethel was the hub of the golden calf. And then they're like, they're saying weird things that no scholar has been able to figure out what they actually mean. And they, 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 they are sometimes seem obedient to God. Other times they seem disobedient to God and they're following idols. And other times they seem to be, oh, following Elijah or Elisha, sorry following Elisha, and other times they're going against them, and then they're doing really crazy and weird things. And it's like, what are these people? And the implication is that they may be a mixed group. They may just be a guild of prophets where there are godly prophets and ungodly prophets in the same guild. And they're all connected by having the same profession, like having a bunch of like um, insurance adjusters at Nationwide. There's some very godly people there who do it in a very godly way. And they're part of the, the, the union or whatever organization they have. But there's probably some very ungodly people there who are cheating people and working the system in the favor of making more money. And you don't know who is who until you see them in action. And it's almost the idea here. And so this just lends to the gray area of the prophets are not always what we have been led to think that they are. Growing up in church, we just think if you're a prophet, you're automatically this incredibly righteous man or woman who obeys God all the time. And then when you really begin to read the stories, you realize they're a mixed group of people who are sometimes obedient and some are not. And sometimes the obedient ones are not obedient. And they're even being led by people like Elijah and Elisha who will disobey God and screw up. And they're like, oh, they're just human. And the only way you know is by what they're doing at that moment. And so it just lends to the gray area of the prophetic ministry, that this is no different than kings, this is no different than priests, this is no different than pastors, elders, deacons, people in ministry, you and I. So this is the company of the prophets, or the sons of the prophets. So this guy basically says, I want you to wound me. I want you to take a sword and actually physically attack me and wound me. And the guy is rightfully so says, like, no, I probably would do the same thing. Like, heck no, dude. Of course, we don't have prophets anymore. But so he says, fine, because you disobeyed the word of Yahweh, a lion is going to kill you. 
and a lion comes out and kills them. That's serious. It's serious because this is literally the voice of God, so to speak. And this guy blatantly disobeyed God. And he reaped the consequences. And for you and I, you're like, oh my gosh, that's harsh. But at the same time, this is Yahweh. This is Yahweh. Remember, you cannot put Yahweh in the box. And he's not a warm, fuzzy little stuffed animal that we've kind of made him out to be over the years. I've said this before, but C.S. Lewis's quote about Aslan is probably like the most modern understanding that we can have that really helps us get Aslan down. Like, he's a lion. Is he safe? Heck no, he's a lion. But he's good. Now, you and I might struggle with how this is good, but so what? You're a sinful, corrupted person who is finite in your understanding of the universe. Who are we to say, that's not right? We have no idea what's going on in the bigger picture of the cosmos. So he says, strike him. Now, this does two things. One, this connects you back to the other man of God who disobeyed God and the lion killed him. And it reminds you that God is consistently remaining the same, that this is the way that he deals with kings and prophets. But the other thing it does is it lets you know that I have just blatantly disobeyed God's word. So now you're expecting a death penalty on Ahab. But it also reminds you, and Elijah disobeyed God, and that hasn't come yet. So all this is reminding you that in the past, God kills people who blatantly disobey him, kings and prophets. That means Ahab, who blatantly disobeyed God, and Elijah, who blatantly disobeyed God, has a death coming. Has a death coming. So it looks both backwards and forward to the story here. So then he goes to another guy. Verse 37. And he said, wound me. So the man wounded him. I'm not going to make the mistake of that guy. This is going to be really weird and uncomfortable, stabbing a prophet with a sword. But I don't want to be ripped apart by a lion either. The prophet then went and stood by the road waiting for the king. He also disguised himself by putting a bandage over his eyes. And when the king passed by, he called out to the king, Your servant went out into the heat of the battle. And then a man turned aside and brought me a prisoner. He told me, Guard this prisoner. If he ends up missing for any reason, you will pay for your own life with a talent of silver. Well, it just so happened that while your servant was doing this and that, he disappeared. And the king of Israel said to him, your punishment is already determined by your own testimony. Meaning that you were told that you were going to die if you let him go. And you let him go. So as king, I reinforced that penalty. You should die for letting the enemy go. Oh, you know what's coming. The prophet quickly removed the bandages from his eyes. The king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets or the sons of prophets. And the prophet then said to him, this is what Yahweh says, because you released the man that I have determined that should die. You will pay with your own life and your people will suffer instead of his people. And the king of Israel went home to Samaria bitter and angry. So he remember how Nathan told a story and illustrated it? Like prophets really like illustrating things like drama. But this is like way beyond like um, Christian Bale and Johnny Depp and like their commitment to like character acting. Like, I want to make an illustration where the king stabbed me with a sword. Okay, that's like, that's true commitment to your art. And so he uses illustration in order to say, you've done exactly the same thing. And just like David says, the man who took the lamb should die. This prophet's like, you just said it. And God said it back in the law. 
you're going to die. So now we should expect Ahab to die. But what's interesting is his death is going to be delayed too. Because it says that but your people will also suffer. Ahab's death is now going to be delayed in order to cause the people to suffer. But the people are going to suffer because Ahab didn't die. And Ahab didn't die because Jehu was never anointed as king. And Jehu was never anointed as king because Elijah didn't do what he's supposed to. So this all goes back on Elijah. 